Welcome everyone to Equals. This is Nabil. We've got a fantastic episode ahead for you. A mesmerizing trip through history through post-independence Africa. Welcome. Welcome everyone. This is Max. Yeah, it's going to be a really good episode. And Max, before I get there, I know this is a global podcast. I know I'm in Nairobi, all of that, but even I can hear it in the chirpiness in your voice. What a joy it is to watch the England football team right now. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a huge football fan, but even I am really excited. I mean, 55 years since we were last in the final of anything substantial. I mean, it's quite a big deal. I mean, there's no escaping that, isn't there? It is. And, and also, look, I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've cried about England being knocked out of the World Cup or the European Football Championships. And I've always wanted them to really badly win, but even more so this time. And I think that's because there's a team, there's a manager standing up for the right things, like really taking on racism. Yeah, and it's such a diverse team and it's just amazing to watch. And I, I'll be honest, I get a real sense of satisfaction because so much of patriotism in, in here in Britain is tied up with racism and a kind of sense of a white past. And, and I, I love the idea of these little Englanders having to cheer on all these black and brown sons and daughters <laughs> of immigrants scoring goals on their behalf. You know, this is the England, this is the Britain that I think is the future and is what I'm proud of. So yeah, it's great to watch. Absolutely. Also shows the England and the Britain that, that we can be. And Max, you mentioned there that, that white past and there is this racist thinking that is rooted somewhere and it does represent this darker past that Britain has that also defines its relationship with the rest of the world. And that brings us nicely to today's episode. Nice segue, Nabil. Really, really professional. <laughs> you see what I like did there. Yeah, 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 Smooth. Yeah. I mean, you're good. You're really good. Okay, yeah, it's true. Absolutely. We're going to be looking at Africa over a two-part special, uh, looking at the future of Africa and also looking back at the past. Absolutely. In the next episode, we'll be talking to Crystal Simeone, an amazing pan-African activist, economic justice thinker. She leads the Nawi Afrifem Makara Economics Collective, and she's going to be looking to the future with us about what economics needs to look like going forwards. And today we're going to be looking back, not so far back, but to kind of the post-independence period and particularly zeroing in on Zambia mm. and the leadership of Kenneth Kaunda, who's universally known as KK, who died recently, and his vision for kind of post-independence economics in Zambia, and also his pan-Africanism. So it's, it's really fascinating. I, I love it. We have someone who's truly exciting to speak to about all of this, a leading economist on the continent today, Grieve Chalwat. I should say Dr. Grieve Chalwat. Now, he's got a very illustrious bio. We'll get onto that. But he's really carving out a different way of understanding the past and applying that to the future. Yeah, he's a really, really interesting guy. I think you're really going to like this interview. Let's get on with it. Let's get to it. Welcome, Grieve Bonji. Great to have kick-ass African economists like yourself on the podcast. Thanks for making the time, brother. Thanks, uh, Max and Abil, for having me. So, Grieve, really welcome to the, the podcast. It's great to have you on. And um, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, just, to, just to start, could you just say a little bit about your yourself, just for the listeners, just to know a bit about you first? Okay, thanks, Max. So, yeah, my name is Grieve Chelwa. I'm an economist who comes from Zambia. I'm talking to you right now from Lusaka, Zambia. I trained as an economist at the University of Zambia and the University of Cape Town. Uh, subsequently did a posting at Harvard as a postdoc researcher there, uh, taught at the University of Cape Town at the business school. And now I work at the Institute on Race and Political Economy at the New School. 
that was start, started this year and is directed by Derek Hamilton, uh, your old friend. That's a great introduction there, Grieve. And uh, you're an economist, but you're also an economist who knows their history. And I want to start there because you're a bit of an expert on former Zambian president, Kenneth Kwanda, and his funeral was held just a few days ago. Been It's prompted, I think, a lot of reflection on his legacy on the, on the legacy of other leaders in Africa from the past. Let's open it up here, looking back. Could you tell us a bit about about former Zambian president Kwanda. And you also wrote about Kwandonomics, if I've if I've said that correctly. Could you talk us through that? Yes. Um, so Kenneth Kaunda was Zambia's first president. Uh, so when Zambia got independence from Britain in 1964, he was the first president of the country. Uh, he was president from 1964 up until 1991. So as you can imagine, he had a very big impact on the, sort of the idea of the country Zambia and the idea of Zambian identity and Zambian nationality. And uh, so he was a very big figure. We've always thought as Zambians that he's underappreciated globally, but I think it's very interesting to see, uh, although belatedly after he's died, but to see what exactly you're talking about, Nabil, this sort of uh, continental and global recognition or rediscovery of Kenneth Kaunda. And uh, when you talk about the piece that I wrote for Africa as a country in 2017, actually in commemoration of Kaunda's 94th birthday, if I'm not mistaken, basically what I wanted to write in that piece was to remind uh, Zambians, even the you know Africans on the continent and even the world, that we had a different kind of economics in the post-independence era. Uh, that kind of economics is forgotten now. It was swept up in, in the tide of uh, neoliberalism. I'm sure we'll talk about that later in the podcast. But I want to remind folks about that era and just the achievements of that era. And how did he how did he start out, Grieve? What are the what are the policies that he had post-independence? How progressive were they? What was it all about? So what is very uh, surprising to most uh, people is that at independence, Zambia was pretty much, you know, you know, sort of following free market capitalist type of policies because he believed, and I think he might have been advised, that that was the best way to organize the Zambian economy to deliver development to for everybody. But immediately, in the first couple of years, maybe three, four, five years, he realized that the economy, which was really in the hands of a majority, a sort of minority white uh, capitalist class, the mines were in the hands of a white capitalist class, immediately realized and noticed that, you know, the private sector, which was driving the economy, wasn't really participating in this process of uh, economic development, which was so vital, given that a, a big chunk of the population was poor. So he immediately realized we need to change course. So three or four years after independence in 1968 and 69, he announced some major reforms, uh, sort of nationalizations of, uh, you know, the uh, sort of private uh, private sector. 80% of the economy was subsequently transferred into state hands. And this launched a rather ambitious economic development program, to my mind, which worked. Right, insofar as developing infrastructure, building roads, hospitals, ensuring that uh, Zambians were progressing through the professions, ensuring that there was mobility, social mobility, you know, ensuring that there was a reduction in economic inequality, all these kinds of things. So, really, Kaunda was not an ideologue, but really his economic policy was motivated by uh, material conditions on the ground. I suppose it's, it's this idea of state involvement that has been completely forgotten. And I wondered whether, you know, where do you think Africa would be today, Grieve, if, 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 if we hadn't had that neoliberal moment, if we hadn't had structural adjustment? What are the kinds of things that we could be seeing today that we're not? 
So in the African case, you're right, um, Max, that it was realized in the 60s that and 70s that you cannot develop without having an active state, right? It is impossible because when you leave everything to the market, the market is not, you know, your market doesn't have feelings, doesn't have emotions, doesn't have uh, humanistic objectives and that kind of stuff. If you leave it to that, all you're going to do is really just capacitate already well off, right? Which in the Zambian case was sort of a minority white capitalist class. You see it across much of Africa at this point because of this recognition that we really need to direct uh, uh, the activities of the state. Otherwise, we will only have a small minority that is doing very well. So where would Africa be today if structural adjustment hadn't happened? We would be in a far better uh, position. The things that we care about are poverty, inequality. I would argue these things, which have now begun to rear their very ugly head, uh, heads in the African context, would not be there. would have much, much more social mobility than we currently have. I always like to tell the story of my father, right? He was born in a very rural part of Zambia, Kato Herda, who ended up at university and, uh, you know, and completely went up the sort of social hierarchy. These kinds of stories are few and far between now. So I think this is where we would be today if we hadn't done structural adjustment in the way we did it. Oh, I completely agree. What about the challenge, if you like, Grieve, to the kind of pan-Africanism or, or, or the African socialism of, of Kaunda or Nyerere that, you know, it basically bankrupted their countries. You know, it was a great idea, but it was just not affordable. So structural adjustment was, you know, the necessary medicine. It wasn't, no one would, you know, and it, think of your enlightened IMF staffer who would say, we really didn't want to go that far, but we just had to because, you know, they were broke. Uh, what, what would you say to that? I think that the most important thing is a misdiagnosis of the problem, right? What we need to understand is what caused the cri- the crisis in African economies beginning the late 70s, early 80s. And my reading of the evidence, at least the, caref- the reading of those who've done careful work on this, uh, suggests that the cause was, was really external factors, right? So some of them very, um, some of them obvious, other much, much less obvious, you know? So, for example, declines in terms of trade. I mean, in the case of Zambia, one of the most uh, curious coincidences is that at the time we nationalized the mines in 1970, the price of copper begins a three-decade decline, right? And then recovers again in the 2000s after we've privatized them again. So, I mean, and then you also have this problem of uh, uh, increasing oil prices, you know, with the formation of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. So you have this serious balance of payment crisis for these new countries, right? So this crisis was, we need to diagnose the cause, the origin of the crisis. For me, it was external factors. Certainly, one should not paper over internal factors. I mean, there were aspects of mismanagement and so on and so forth. But mismanagement tends to happen everywhere. I mean, we see it, uh, companies collapsing in the US, private companies collapsing in Britain and everywhere else. But I think the major source of the crisis was these external factors. And I think the solution was the wrong one because the crisis was misdiagnosed. The solution by the IMF and World Bank, which led much of this uh, policy work, was to identify a majority of the crisis as being internally generated. So therefore, structural adjustment was the wrong solution, the wrong problem, right? In actual fact, what these countries really needed was foreign exchange. And Grieve, just going there as well, because... Um, I like how you speak there about the external factors. You you mentioned just earlier on in this interview about state control, Zambia's huge natural resource there in copper, um, and the ownership of that by what you described as a white capitalist class. What was the reaction, both at home but also from abroad, 
to the measures that 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 KK was taking. Because it's very easy looking back now for people to you know with hindsight positively remark on 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 achievements in that period. But that can't have been the same at the time. Uh, you're right. I mean, so the reactions back home. This was a very popular policy move now popular not in the sense of popularist policies or whatever but it is something that the people who kk was leading saw as something that was necessary right i mean one interesting anecdote that i can share with you is that just after independence uh, kenneth kaunda visited one of the mines at this time now the mines are still privately owned by american metal climax and anglo-american uh, it's a it's a topic for another day how it is that Anglo-American and American Middle Climax don't own the mines, but we'll leave it at that. Yeah? So the mines are still privately uh, run. And then KK visits one of these mines and he looks around the managerial class and he sees there are no Zambians in the managerial class, about maybe in early 60s, early 65, 60, somewhere there. And he asks, so when can we expect, you know, business, if business as usual continues, when can we expect to see Zambians uh, taking over some of these managerial positions? And with straight faces, the uh, white owners told him, uh, not before 2003, Your Excellency, right? And, and that's the problem with the private sector, because private sector is always comfortable with business as usual. They can justify anything, you know. Uh, and, you know, after we nationalized, we soon had lots of Zambians. In a matter of years, we had lots of Zambians taking up uh, a very senior positions here and there who have gone on to our very illustrious, distinguished careers in the mining sector globally, right? Anyways, but the, the response back home was very receptive because this is something that uh, the people who had uh, fought for independence saw as a necessary thing. The response outside, on the other hand, was very, very, very critical. I've read some cables, for example, from the law firms that were representing Amer- American Metal Climax, Anglo-American, and these other kind of places, really writing about how these guys, you know, should, should be treated with care. It might be a radical. We have to be very careful. So the external reception was very cold. Luckily for us, reaction was not as bad as it was in Chile. You know, as you know, at the time, we were nationalizing our mind, Salvador Allende, who's president in Chile, also nationalized the Chilean copper. And the re- and Chilean history, you know, the, re- the rest is history in Chile. Uh, three years later, Allende was murdered. We, and, could, we could have had a Zambian Pinochet. You know, exactly. So fortunately for us, uh, uh, maybe Zambia wasn't so important for the US, uh, for, you know, the US and whoever, whoever was involved in the Chilean coup. But yes, I mean, so that was certainly the reaction. And what is actually very important, we use this word nationalization very carelessly. We did not take over these mines without compensation, actually. Kaunda just took, Kaunda and his government took a 51% stake. So American Metro Climax and Anglo-American Corporation still maintained some stake in the mines. And they were actually compensated for the 51% stake that we took over by issuing very costly bonds that really saddled us with debt. Uh, you know, so it's a very ironic situation where Zambians have been paying debt to get back mines which were supposed to be theirs uh, anyways. I feel we could talk about KK all day. I'm, I'm interested just to ask you about his role more widely on the continent in supporting liberation struggles. If you could talk us through that, but also to what extent was it a distraction from what was needed to be done at home in Zambia? Yeah, thanks for that question. I mean, KK is a student of uh, Kwame Nkrumah's, you know, notion of African unity and African liberation and African independence. I think he attended the very famous um, All Africa People's uh, meeting that took place in Ghana in the late 50s, just after Ghana's independence. Nkrumah did say uh, on the occasion of Ghana's independence in 1957 that it's pointless for, I'm paraphrasing him, but he said something to the effect, it is pointless for us to celebrate independence if the rest of Africa is not uh, liberated. So 
KK was a graduate of that school of thought. And it is not surprising that within Southern Africa, then he began to say, look, I mean, it is pointless for us as Zambians to be this island of independence when those around us are still fighting white minority rule. Right. So he then uh, took a principled stand to say he's going to support liberation efforts. Uh, many of these liberation uh, movements had some representative representation in Zambia. They had a home in Zambia. I think the ANC even had a headquarters in Zambia. I think I think um, actually uh, Oxfam shared an office with the ANC in Zambia for for twenty years. I think amazing. Exactly. Yeah, so we, we have a we have a distinctive history, and we had all of these kind of so called projects uh, that were actually just support for the ANC. Wonderful. Um, so yeah. Very much. Uh, Lusaka was the home of all of that, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was. I, I, I mean, I'm very jealous for my parents' generation and those because they have stories from that era. You know, you know, seeing Tabumbeki on a Lusaka street or Jacob Zuma somewhere there. But these things are not free. I mean, I can only imagine hosting people who are engaged in, 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 in waging a war. It must not be a very cheap exercise. So even when uh, copper fortunes are dwindling, even when Kaunda has this mammoth task of developing the country, he had to think about what was being happening elsewhere. So in terms of economic resources, certainly that's, I can mind as a competition, economic resources. Uh, and all sorts of destabilization. I mean, who knows what the South Africans were up to and the, exactly. and, and the Rhodesians, you know, in terms of trying to undermine the Zambian economy the whole time. I can only imagine, exactly. I can only imagine the kind of nefarious things that were going on. And Max, this is a very important point you raise because to my mind, a proper reckoning of what happened to many African economies in the 60s, 70s, and 80s has to grapple with what you just talked about, geopolitics, right? Mm. Sabotage, you know, economic sabotage. Because sadly, we often don't have the smoking gun evidence for these kinds of things, right? Because they're not done in the open. It's not like they leave an audit trail or anything. But these things can be just as destabilizing as anything else. So I think for many Zambians, there's this sense of what what could have been right uh, imagine if kk had just focused his energy and resources on developing the country if we kind of fast forward to today so we've had this coronavirus calamity that is building on an existing debt crisis in africa and you know we've just done work as oxfam looking at kind of imf programs for the next four or five years and i mean maybe it's not the full gloves off structural adjustment but it's not far off i mean it really is about massive fiscal consolidation and in some ways it isn't all about privatization because those things have already happened you know so it's 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 not because they've somehow realized that they don't need to do that any longer you know it's, it's no longer a big state to chip away at but so where where do you see the kind of resistance to that economic worldview in africa in the next few years and what can we do to kind of build a different economic model and a different recovery from the COVID crisis? Coronavirus crisis has, has exposed this aspect that the the economic policies of the 80s really, really in eroding the state were completely uh, disastrous. And for me, uh, going forward, the most important thing I think in the African case is to build back the capacity of the African state, to really make it much, much bigger than it is, much more present in the economic uh, aspects of spheres of people's lives. So not so much to reinvent a different economic model. I mean, we have a blueprint. We have the blue blueprint from the immediate post-independent years. We need to go back to that era, learn what worked, adapt what didn't work, fix what didn't work for the 21st century. So you're right. I mean, this is how I see the problem. The, pro uh, the problem is really for us to build a capable, effective state. 
And this is why we're completely being annihilated by the coronavirus crisis. This is why it's completely impossible, difficult for many African governments to control, for example, you know, issues like lockdowns, partial lockdowns, because, I mean, people need to eat. People really exist outside of the state. People are eking out a living in the informal economy under very bad conditions. And that in itself, the informal economy is not natural. It doesn't happen, didn't happen just like that. The informal economy begins to happen when the state is being rolled back in the 80s. So this is really, for me, this coronavirus uh, crisis has really brought home the lesson of having a capable state. Very interesting, grief. To what extent has the challenges that we face on the African continent today been a result of just in a colonial way importing foreign economic models onto the continent? And Grieve, I have to I have to add here as well, because I think you're an academic and that's yeah. brilliant. But I was also interested to see in your bio that you have also you know, experience as a banker with, uh, with some prominent yeah. um, Western firms. So you've seen it from the inside as well. Yes, I have. I've seen it from the inside. So in many ways, I'm not talking without. I'm like the atheist who's read the Bible cover for cover <laughs> and then <laughs> critiques it if I, if, I, if I use that kind of example. Uh, I think the, the, thing, the issue about homegrown African solutions, for me, I think it's a red herring. What we need to do is to learn from everybody, right? Learn, for example, if somebody has to say, what do you learn from the U.S.? I mean, I would say the lesson there is that, you know, building a capitalist behemoth on the basis of slavery is not the way to do it, right? Because that's completely... So the point is to say we need to learn from everybody else who's come before us and then adapt those learnings for a local situation and then to drive that process. And this is why, for me, the immediate post-independence era, if I had to do a research, a book project on it, I would study it very closely because therein you see the lessons of saying, we are now independent. We want to develop. Where are we going to look? Okay, let's look over there. What are they doing right? Okay, they're doing that right. What about over there? What are they doing wrong? They're doing this aspect wrong. And then we're in the driving seat. And you see this in the KK era, for example. We had development plans. We had four development plans between 1966 and 1989. And then when the structure adjustment era came with a new government, we stopped planning completely. I mean, so one is left to wonder what was happening during that 15 years. But, so, but that is exactly, for me, the issue. It's not so much... We need African solutions for African problems. I think what we need is Africans to drive the process, but we need to learn from everybody else. We need to be engaged in, a, in, in, the, in discussion, in conversation with others so they can share with us their lessons, their failings, their successes. That's the way to go, I think. Wonderful. We, we've spoken about that era of leaders, the school of Nyerere and others, as you know, so nicely put it, before grief. I'm interested to ask, who's carrying the torch of that legacy today in Africa? Are there countries on the continent that you look to and say, yeah, that's that's the way to go? You know, who's doing things right? I've been thinking hard and I can't think of any, to be honest, Um because structural adjustment was really profound in its impact in the realm of ideas. Um, one of my intellectual heroes is a Malawian economist called Tandika Mkandawire, and he wrote an essay about ideas, the importance of ideas in the economic sphere, and just the kind of just how, how we end up with these different ideas about how to organize the economy. And what you have right now running affairs in many African countries are men and women who got their training in the 80s at the height of structural adjustment. So if you are trained as an economist in the 80s, just imagine the kind of training you received. And you know, once you are trained, it's very difficult to be untrained. <laughs> you have to run with those ideas. So for many of the, many parts of the continent, we have people who really believe in the private sector, who worship at the out of the market, 
and that is why we're seeing all this inequality popping up, which is uh, which is sort of it's mind numbing. I've been I've been back to Lusaka now for the first time in 14 years for an extended period of time, and I mean the houses I'm seeing, the lifestyles I'm seeing are incredibly crazy. So I cannot think of any country to be honest. Maybe Botswana comes close. I mean Botswana is always touted as a success story, but Botswana is also very unique in that it's um, a very uniform country, a very small country, a huge resource endowment. But even then, they've managed it well. But I cannot think, for example of a country that stands as a model now. I think there is a lot of traction, like you are saying, there's a lot of uh, young people now who are beginning to discover that period and uh, we're beginning to think about crafting, imagining a new way of organizing things going forward. But yeah. sadly, I can't think of any right now. So just, uh, just one thing you said there, Grieve, about uh, maybe you say a little bit more about that. So you're coming back to Lusaka. When you say that the houses, do you mean the scale of inequality? You mean the fact it, it feels more dramatic? What did you mean by that? Yeah, it is very dramatic. I think one of the things we haven't done very well in the African case is to carefully document the inequality and the kinds of inequality that have arisen uh, since structural adjustment. I mean, it is quite profound. I am seeing people living lifestyles that, uh, you know, were once the preserve of, you know, the uber wealthy, many of these financial capitals of the world. And it's happening here in Lusaka. Right. But then it's happening at a time that a lot more people are being left behind. There's a lot of immiserization. So this, yeah, this kind of in-your-face inequality that I have seen in Lusaka. And I'm sure it's the same everywhere else. Uh, Max, I'm mm. sure you've seen it change over your own uh, long career. I mean, it's the same. You go to uh, you go to Nairobi, it's the same story. Even in, even in Malawi, you know, the, 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 the scale of yeah. the inequality seems to me more, more dramatic, definitely. Yeah. Um, and I think Africa is still seen very much as a poverty problem, not as an inequality one, you know, and yeah. I think that's problematic. That's true. And when quality pops up like this, then, you know, things like democracy and, you know, and ballot box democracy and elections and political parties almost always become like a farce because, you know, those who are, those who are very well off, who are like Max, you put it, who are, you know, deriving rents from this kind of status quo. I mean, they have to defend that status quo. So, you know, your, your process is also unequal. It's crazy. Let me end, Grieve, with a question about hope because we've covered a lot of history over this podcast we've also looked at the present day with the it feels like insurmountable problems at times but do you have hope for you know a real progressive a real sense of greater economic equality on the african continent i I think i do one thing that is very striking again when people think about structural adjustment they always think about it in economic terms but it had economic and political ramifications i mean over the in the zambian case for example it was very it was laughable 10 or 15 years ago to have a socialist party you know people would laugh you out of the you know out of the room but we now have a socialist party that, by all indications, could come out third in the forthcoming election. Wow, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Uh, we have uh, the party of independence called UNIP, which was Kaunda's party, is also coming back quite strong with a new leader. So there's something in this new generation that has sensed the failings of what has happened the last 20, 30 years. And we are trying to sort of rediscover, you know, our history. So I'm very hopeful uh, that you'll see more of these progressive parties, more of these progressive formations. Or just more ideology. I mean, one thing that's always been lacking, it seems to me, just don't see the kind of left-right discussions. It's all about kind of transparency and corruption and all very important things, but no kind of ideological constructs. Mm-hmm. So do you think that's perhaps changing because that would be exciting i i think it is changing seismically in the new generation but obviously we need to do the work 
And you're right, that's in your observation. But this is what structural adjustment did. It won, right? It won. They, it was settled. I mean, there was a whole infrastructure that subsidized the idea. So you have to be crazy that 20 years ago in civil society saying we need to, we need to go back to left-leaning politics or left-leaning policies. We, people would laugh at you. This didn't work. You know, the result is here. Mass starvation, hunger, unemployment. So you're trying to, you know. So, But I think we now realize that, oh, my God, the story was told, was told wrongly. <laughs> you know, so I, I'm, I, I can see, for example, the likes of Pilato, for example, and many other people who are articulating, you know, talking about inequality, and inequality rearing its ugly head. These kinds of conversations were... You and far between ten years ago. Thank you, thank you so much, Grieve, for this for this interview. We have we have we have a rule for like thirty minute podcasts to keep them a digestible format, but I feel this one could have gone on for hours. So thank you very much, bro, and thank you for everything that you're doing. Yes, I really enjoyed that. I feel like we should, you know, meet again and talk some more. Thank you so much, Nabil and Max. I really, really enjoyed it. And again, I'm in awe of the work that Oxfam does. Wow, that was like catnip for me. I mean, African <laughs> history, left-wing politics. I mean, oh, it was brilliant. I loved it. And clearly we need to do more history on the podcast, Max. Totally, yeah. There were many amazing points that Grieve made there as well. I think his, his points about, you know, the sheer death blow of structural adjustment were very powerful. It hit public services, it hit at the state, but also uh, economic imagination here on the continent. Yeah, I mean, it's something I've also studied a lot over the years. And it was such a period of ideological experimentation. You know, if you imagine how they they privatized Russia after the Soviet Union fell, it was exactly the same. You had these kind of right wing economists working for the bank and the fund arriving in a country like Zambia, seeing it like a an economic experiment and they had such power and they did so much harm to so many people's lives and it's important to understand that legacy but also it's so relevant to the lack of policy debate today because as you say they kind of limited the imagination of what's possible yeah and there is this assumption i think sometimes in my generation max that africa's always been the same but the truth is you know, we've had different economic models over the last 50 years or so. And it's very interesting today speaking to grieve, you know, how 20 or 30 years ago, you'd be laughed out of the room talking about the role of the state. But that is now happening. There is this willingness to embrace some of the ideas from the past, from that post-independence period, isn't there? There is. And I think, it, you know, it's not even a left-wing thing. You know, the idea that your government should actively be involved in the development of your country. I mean, look at the history of somewhere like Taiwan or Korea or basically any country on earth. Rich countries, uh, you know, had big, big involvement of government. So it, 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 it's great to see that that's back on the agenda for Africa because uh, Africa will not develop without it. And there is some hope, isn't there, from some leaders, Max, because Grieve gave us a challenging answer here. But you look at Julius Mardabio, the president of Sierra Leone, there are some leaders with imagination trying to equalise things. I think there are. And we've certainly talked about them on the podcast before. But I also think there are many leaders in Africa, many governments in Africa who do not have the interests of, of their people at heart. And that in itself is a, a product, as, as he talked about, the, the grotesque inequality, the kind of marriage of money and politics which is not just an african phenomenon we see it in the us we see it everywhere and that leads you to a situation where you kind of on the one hand you want to see governments do more to develop the country you don't want to leave it to the free market but on the other hand you look at your current government i mean imagine you know the current kenyan government having the same vision of kenneth kawanda developing 
Kenya is hard to picture, isn't it? So I think that is the big dilemma, not just for Africa, but, but everywhere. Yeah, I think you're right there. And that's a tension that we get into in our next episode. It's also an amazing episode with Crystal Simeone based here actually in Kenya. She'll be walking us through what an, what an economics looks like for the future in Africa and also critiquing some of the things that are wrong with mainstream economics that it doesn't get about Africa. Yeah, no, that's going to be great coming to the future and what this means right now for Africa. It's going to be a great episode. Thanks everyone for joining us. Do leave us a review, share the podcast with your family and friends and do join us next time. Yeah, see you all next time. Cheers. Cheers.